as we were sharing around the table, I, I kept trying to jump in because I had a, a, had a note to share with you, but uh, it was nice that uh, Daryl took all the time. I mean, that a lot of people were sharing. <laughs> Anyways, Sally sent me a note that she wanted to uh, share this morning. Uh, as you know, Sally was uh, admitted into hospital last weekend, and we sent out a prayer request for her. Uh, she says, I'm still in hospital, infection mostly under control, figuring out next steps and continuing on antibiotics, much improved from last week and avoiding surgery so far. Please pray for continued healing and wisdom for the doctor. Thank you all so much. I'm very humbled and know that God is in control. And so we talked about the importance of prayer and the communication that we have uh, with uh, our Heavenly Father, who is a good, good Father. And so I would encourage you to continue praying for Sally and lifting her up uh, in prayer uh, as the uh, doctors uh, continue to work on her in, in the situation that she finds herself in. So let's just uh, lift Sally up in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you uh, that you care for each one of us. And Lord, we lift Sally up to you now. It's been a week that she's been in hospital with this infection. And uh, Lord, just pray that you would continue to bring healing to her body. Lord, our prayer is that she would not have to have surgery. And Lord, that uh, the pain would, would subside. And so Lord, we know that you are a good, good father, that you are the great physician. And Lord, that you can do miracles. And so, God, we just pray uh, for that in Sally's case, Lord, that your will would be done. Lord, may you bring peace in her life, uh, and Brian and her family. Lord, would you use this situation to bring glory to yourself, whatever that looks like. Lord, we just pray that you uh, would be sovereign. Thank you for Sally's confidence that that is who you are. You are uh, the God of this universe who can do all things and hold each one of us in your hand. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, Thursday, this past Thursday, Graham and I were at the Pete's game, and Graham came back after, I think, the first intermission, quite excited that he was pretty sure he had spotted uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Does everyone know who The Rock is? If you don't, you're living under a rock. He's like the most popular actor right now in all the movies. He's got a new uh, uh, gladiator-type TV show. Anyways, he came back saying, Dad, I saw Dwayne. I'm sure it was Dwayne Johnson. I said, are you sure you didn't just see me from behind? I kind of <laughs> look similar. Anyways, and so he was certain that he had saw him, and I sat and thought, well, and, you know, for the rest of the game, I'm kind of looking and saying, well, can Dwayne Johnson come to a Pete's game? Maybe because if he knew Brian was there. But um, other than that, would he really come to Peterborough and go to a Pete's game? And I started daydreaming, and I have this daydream often, what it must be like to be someone like Dwayne Johnson, someone of power, someone who's popular, a celebrity that gets all sorts of pri privileges and honor, and people want to be around you, and they want your autograph, and they want to take a picture with you. And so, uh, like if it's at the gym, there's a couple of guys at our gym, and they are just solid. They can lift real heavy weights, and they got muscles on top of muscles. And sometimes all day, I wonder what it must be like to be that person at the gym that everyone is looking at and watching and talking under their breath about. And so then all of a sudden, I'll start imagining, well, I'm not just the strongest, most muscular person in the gym. I'm like Arnold Schwarzenegger, running, walking around the track, and everyone is taking notice. And so I'll, I'll have these kind of daydreams. And, and I realize it'll never come true. I'm never going to be that person, that celebrity, that person of power that, that gets all the special 
privileges, but then I realized there was a time in my life in a very small way that I did get to experience that kind of treatment. And my dad's company uh, used to hold a yearly conference at the Royal York Hotel. And at the time, it was the biggest conference that was held at the Royal York Hotel each year. And so each year, I would get the opportunity for about a week uh, at the Royal York Hotel. And when you worked there, you got to find all the hidden passageways, and you got to go places where the other employees would go. And this one particular day, one of the employees said, you realize that there's a cafeteria downstairs, and it's for employees of Royal York Hotel, but it's where all the leftover food from the banquets and everything goes. And you, I think, could probably get your meal. And it's really cheap. Like you can get like a roast beef dinner for a dollar or whatever it was. So it's, I'm going, okay, i got to check this thing out. So it was right in the basement of this hallway that you would have never imagined that there was a cafeteria. And I walk into the cafeteria, and all of a sudden I feel really like I shouldn't be here. And so one of the employees comes over and says, can I help you? And I said, well, someone told me, I'm working with the um, Industrial Accident Prevention Association's conference, and someone told me that I could come down here and get a meal. And he said, well, usually we don't let just anyone come down here and have a meal. Like, do you work for the IEPA? I said, oh, no, my dad is the vice president of of the IEPA, Jack Mackey. And he said, you're Jack Mackey's son? (laughs) Well, help yourself. And I said, so, so really, like, I can go through the line? And the guy looked at me and said, do you realize who you are as a result of who your father is? And so for the rest of my time at the Royal York Hotel, I made sure people knew that I was Jack Mackey's son. <laughs> so not quite the rock, but it got me some $1 meals. It was, it was, it was good. <laughs> but you know, that's what Peter wants his writer, or readers to understand. He wants us to think about the readers, the very first audience, those who are being treated poorly because of their faith in Jesus, uh, who were experiencing such horrible difficulties that some of them were even forgetting who they were. And for us, who know what it's like to live out our faith in a world that's not so friendly about our faith, that, that alienate us, that, that treat us poorly, that make us feel like the odd man out or the odd woman out. What Peter wants us to realize is this. Do you realize who you are because of who Jesus is? And last week, we began looking at chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which is really the last verses uh, of the first section of Peter's first letter. Now, next week, we're going to begin the second section. And we looked at a reality last week, that if we lose sight of who we are, if we lose sight of our true identity, that's, why, that's when compromise and temptation become more difficult to resist. That's when our perspective goes off track. Uh, that's when we find ourselves behaving in ways that's not in keeping with who we are. And Peter gets that. And so he has been encouraging us and instructing us, his readers, to embrace the hope that there is in understanding who we are as individuals and as a collective group from God's perspective. 
And so we saw that that was true for the readers back then, and that's true for us today. And and Peter began this letter, if you remember, way back in verse 3, with this beautiful truth of our our identity in Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. And he says this, you are ones who have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then in the first 12 verses of, of 1 Peter 1, Peter goes over and over and on and on about this great salvation that we have that, that is to be our motivation and our encouragement to live a life that's worthy of that great salvation. And then we get to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and Peter is going to continue, and we saw that last week, to talk about what our identity is as followers of Jesus. And so I, I tried to split it up last week and this week in a way that was easier to chew, because as I said to some of you last week, it's kind of a clunky passage. And so last week we looked at the fact that we are who we are because of who Jesus is. And this week I want to look at we are who God has made us to be so that we can tell the world about him. So God has made us who we are so we can tell the world who God is. So let's turn in our Bible to uh, 1 Peter 2. And let's just look at that passage one more time. And let's get into the second uh, question. We'll just do a quick recap. Last week, there was a number of people that uh, weren't here because of the weather, and there's a bunch of people here, uh, not here this week as well because of the weather, so hopefully people will catch up uh, on the uh, website where all the sermons are. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, page 981 of your pew Bible. and verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so last week we looked at the question, who uh, is Jesus? And it's important because who we are is rooted in who Jesus is. And so we saw the key term that Peter uses to describe who Jesus is. And Peter says, Jesus is the living stone, the living stone upon which the church uh, is built. And Peter goes back to Isaiah's writing, where we find that God has made great promises to the people of Israel. And it's symbolized by the stone laid in Zion. But instead of accepting and believing these promises, we we discover that the people rejected God's promises. Instead, they chose disobedience and and compromise and and indulgence. And as a result of their rejection, uh, they experienced judgment. 
And so Peter takes those verses from Isaiah and applies them to Jesus, showing that God's promises have come true, that he has provided a way of salvation, and it's found in the person of Jesus, the living stone. And just like in the days of Isaiah, where, where, where the majority of people rejected God's promises, the majority of people have rejected Jesus. But Peter shows us that rejection does not have the final word. Because God has made Jesus the living stone to be the cornerstone of the church. And we saw that the cornerstone is that first stone laid that forms the angles and the the foundation of a structure. So Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He is the sure foundation for the church. And then Peter says that Jesus is the capstone, the final stone placed, the, the climatic stone that's placed on a structure. And so Jesus is the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption. His death and and resurrection are the climatic moment of God's plan of salvation. But Jesus is also the stumbling stone that we see from Peter's use of Old Testament uh, verses. There are many people who reject Jesus, who do not obey the message of the gospel. They don't have use for Jesus. They find Jesus frustrating because they don't know what to do with him. And so Peter says, they stumble over Jesus, and they fall. Jesus is also the touchstone, the standard by which people will be recognized and judged. He's the touchstone of history, and as the touchstone, Jesus becomes the dividing line for humanity. Remember last week, we, we, we took a look in, at Luke's account of Simeon. And we saw that this baby, Jesus, what was so special about him is that that he was God's perfect fit for salvation. That he was our assurance of peace. That he would bring salvation to all people. That he was a baby who was born to die, but because of his death, forgiveness and redemption was possible for those who had put their faith in him. But we saw that Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. That wherever the light of the gospel shines, there will be people who embrace Jesus, who accept him and accept his gift, and there will be those who reject Jesus. And that's the dividing line. And Simeon makes it very clear. And Peter makes it very clear. There are only two sides to the equation. You either accept Jesus, you obey him, you are given a new birth into a living hope, or you reject Jesus. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. And so we come into this morning's verses, and the question that I want to answer is, who are we? Again, I said it's important that we understand who Jesus is, because who Jesus is determines who we are. And ultimately, who we are is based on our response to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so, first of all, and foremost, who we are, according to verse 3 of chapter 1, we are those who have put our faith in Jesus, who have been given a new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But then in these verses, Peter says also that we are, as one speaker said, we are chips off the old block. Jesus is the living stone, and so I guess more accurately, we are chips off the living block. 
Remember, Jesus is the living stone. He's the stone, he's the foundation upon which the church is built. And in verse 5, if you notice, Peter uses a very special metaphor for believers. Jesus is the living stone, but Peter says, those of you who put your faith in Jesus, you too are living stones built into a spiritual house. And don't miss the implication for Peter's initial audience. They were feeling isolated. A lot of them were scattered across the land. And there were some of them who were honestly wondering what in the world have they gotten into. That they feel so alone. And Peter wants them to see you're not alone. Oh, you might be isolated. You might be in an area of, 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 of the nation where there's no other Christian, but you're not alone. You're, you're not just part of a group of social outcasts. You are a living stone that's been built into a spiritual house. Every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ becomes part of this great everlasting community. I think we stumble over some of the phrases that Peter uses. What's a spiritual house? And how do you get your head around this concept of a living stone? Because if you go and pick up a stone, you know that a stone is dead. Let me try to help you by showing you what Peter is describing in these verses is two separate building projects. And you may look at the verses and you go, no, I see one. Jesus has got some building project going on. No, there's two building projects. The first one is those who reject Jesus, who choose something else as a foundation by which they will build their life. And we're surrounded by people who have rejected Jesus, the living stone, as the foundation by which they will live And instead, have built their life on all sorts of different foundations. And Peter makes it very clear. In the end, that will fail. That foundation will crumble. But there's a second building project going on. And that's the building project that Jesus is involved in. Because Peter says Jesus is building a house. He's building the church. And he's taking dead stones quarried out of the pit of sin, made alive through the new birth, and he's placing them one by one in this grand structure called the church. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus takes them and he places them and he builds one stone upon another stone upon another stone in this living and ever-growing building that's called the church. And you know, I think some of us maybe have a skewed view of what the church really is. That that we see it as a a social club or or it's just a group of of humans. It's a human organization. Or maybe it's just the the physical building. Yet Peter describes it here as a collection of living stones that are being built upon each other one by one And it's being built by the head of the church, Jesus himself. And I think there's some observations that we can pull at this point from the text. And the one that is in the form of a question. 
Do you think it's any more encouraging for Peter's readers to know that, you know, you're not alone, you're not isolated, but rather you are one living stone that's part of a building of, made up of countless living stones? So the question I'm asking is, what's worse, feeling alone and isolated or feeling insignificant? And it's a real question. Because I don't think I've been in a church or part of a church or visited a church where I haven't come across people who feel insignificant. And that's why they sit on the sidelines. They feel insignificant, that they couldn't be used, that they couldn't do the things that the more significant people within the church can do. And so they conclude that they don't have significance. And, and that's not what Peter intends at all by describing us as you know, individual living stones that are being built up into this huge structure of countless living stones. Rather, Peter wants us to know how critical a part each one of us plays within the church. You know, I was thinking of uh, our wood pile and the, the times where, and, and if you pile wood, you know what happens when you've built this beautiful construction of wood and then someone takes one little piece of wood out and the whole thing falls down. Or, or maybe who are, those of you who are as old as me and you remember the game Kerplunk and you got all these marbles sitting on all these straws and you go, okay, I can take out this one little straw. Nothing's good. How could anything happen from this one little insignificant straw that's, that, that's, that's just part of a whole bunch of other straws? And you pull that one straw and boom, all these marbles fall down. That's what Peter wants us to understand about our role in the church. You would be missed if you were not part of the church that Jesus is building. The, the building would be weakened. Don't ever underestimate the critical role that you play within the church. Another observation that's kind of related is, is this imagery that tells us that, that each individual living stone is being built up into a single unit. Implies that the Christian's significance and purpose will never be realized apart from community with other believers. Jesus does not save us and, and bring us to new life as a living stone and places us out in the middle of a field to live our Christian life all by ourselves. No, he gives us new birth. And as living stones, we, we are built with each other into the church. And, and I think our problem is we read what uh, Peter's saying in this letter and we, we hear it as an individual. Like, who am I? I am who I am because of who Jesus is. Yeah, that's true as an individual, but we are who we are because of who Jesus is. That's what Peter wants us to understand. Yes, God has made me who I am so that I will go out and tell people about who he is. But Peter wants us to understand is that God has made us who we are so that we collectively will go out into this world and tell people who he is. And then the third observation is this. I think we need to set aside our criticism and our opinions of the church and begin to see it from God's point of view. Why does Peter have such a positive, exalted view of the church? Is it because the people of his day were more holy and pure? Did they worship better? Were they more theologically uh, inclined? 
No, I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm assuming the churches of Peter's day had the same problems that the churches of our day do. Maybe worse. The church then and the church now is filled with sinners who have come to Christ for salvation and who have made a commitment and stumbled their way through trying to live a life of obedience. So what is it? Why did Peter have such a high and exalted view of the church? It's because he saw it from God's perspective. That the church is the bride of Christ. That Jesus died for. That the church is the community of grace. The church is God's chosen channel by which his love and mercy and grace and the gospel will be known to an unbelieving world. That God has planned a wonderful future for the church. That there is coming a day when the last stone is going to be placed and Jesus is going to come back again and the scaffolding is going to come down and the whole world is going to see the glory of the building project that Jesus has been working on. Who are we? We're living stones built up into a spiritual house. We're chips off the living block. Peter goes on to say that uh, we, we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are those who will not be put to shame, but rather will have a share in the honor that's been bestowed upon Christ by God. I, it's unfortunate in the NIV that they have interpreted verse 7 the way that they have because it causes us to miss out on a theme or a motif that Peter wants us to see, a contrast between honor and shame. The ESV uh, translates verse 7 like this. So in verse 6, I'll read it from the NIV. For see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then in the ESV, it says for verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And then it continues on, talking about the stone that these people have rejected, Jesus. Honor was a primary value in first century Rome. Honor involved a positive social standing, a a positive reputation, a positive status in the opinion of those around you. Shame involved the sensitivity towards the possible loss of honor. Or shame was the actual loss of honor. So the question's got to be asked Does your faith in Jesus Christ elevate or lower your status among the people of this world? Does your faith in Jesus Christ bring you honor or shame in this world? Now, I want you to be honest and think about that. Does your faith in Jesus Christ lived out bring you honor or shame? How does the world treat you because of your faith? What's its opinion of your views? How does it label you? I was just thinking of what Justin Trudeau just said a couple weeks ago, and I realize you don't have to be a Christian to be pro-life. But when Justin Trudeau says that those who are pro-life don't reflect the society of today, 
That's just a perfect example of shaming. And the same was true in Peter's day. It says the reality for Peter's audience is that they were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the undeserved suffering that could lead to despair and eventually even the renunciation of the Christian faith. I don't think things have really changed that much. I think there's a lot of shaming that goes on even today for Christians. And what Peter wants us to understand, what he wants to do is to turn the tables on our understanding of honor and shame. He wants us to reverse our understanding on the basis of honor and shame. To see that true honor isn't the result of having a positive social standing and status and uh, reputation in the eyes of this world but rather to see that ultimately it's God who is the arbitrator of honor and shame. And God says, those who put their faith in my son, in the end will not be put to shame. Rather, it's those who reject my son, they will come face to face with me in shameful judgment. And Peter wants us to understand that True honor, the honor that God bestows, is reserved for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And honor here is simply a share in the honor that God has bestowed upon Jesus, who we are united with in the spiritual house. And in verse 9, and we don't have a whole lot of time, so actually our time is up. Uh, In verse 9, Peter describes that honor using four phrases, which I would love to get into. Uh, because they don't really jump out at the page to us. To know that you are part of a chosen race, that we are part of a holy nation, that we are God's special possession. If if you've been around church, maybe there's a little bit of significance in that, but they they are terms that in 2019 don't make us jump up and down for joy because we don't really understand the depth of what Peter was saying to these people. The fact that we are a royal priesthood, like, again, it's, it's kind of out of touch with our context. But for a Jew or even for a Gentile in first century Rome, to think that they could have anything to do with royalty or priesthood, that was no different than me walking around the track at my fitness club thinking I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger or that I could become anything close. They could never imagine that becoming royalty or becoming a priest, which was directly uh, linked to your lineage and family, it's something that you inherited, came with all sorts of privilege and status. That was not something for them. And yet Peter says, no. The gospel has leveled humanity all on an equal playing ground. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are given a status that you never, ever could have had before. You're a child of God. In the same family as King Jesus, you're royalty. You have become a priest. We are a priesthood. 
We have access to God through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And, and we have the task of sharing the good news of God, His forgiveness, His love, His mercy to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus. The honor is ours because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter concludes this part of the letter by saying, you're living stones. You won't be put to shame. You're people to which the honor is given. And you're God's representatives here on earth. That God has done all of these things for you. He has made us who we are so that we will share with the world who he is. That's our job description. That's why God doesn't zap us up to heaven the moment we give our life to Jesus. He leaves us here so that we will tell others how excellent he is. And if that, the idea that this is your job description doesn't even cross your mind ever, if you don't even imagine yourself as God's representatives, that, that we're left here to be declaring his excellencies to this world, my guess is that you have not come to grips with who you really are in Jesus Christ. Because when you realize who you are and what God has made you, when we, as a community of faith, realize who we are and what God has made us, we will be like Mel this morning at the sharing time, bursting to tell people about how excellent our God is. And if that's not where you're at this morning, I encourage you, Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Read through to verse 10 of chapter 2 and say, God, show me what you have made me. Show me how great my salvation is so that I will declare to others the truth of what you show me. And that's my prayer for you as we continue on in 1 Peter.